Hello and welcome to episode 44 of Girls Gone Canon, A Ghost in Winterfell, A Dance with Dragons. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. You can find me on the internet as Liza Arbor on Twitter, Tumblr, and LizaNarborGold.com at my blog. And I'm another one of your hosts, Eliana. You might know me as Glass Table Girl from the Saga of Ice and Fire subreddit, maybe on the Maester Monthly podcast, or as Arithmetric over on Twitter. And another person you might remember from before on our podcast, we had him on during our Quentin episodes, and you should know him. He has done some great work in the community. We have poor Quentin here with us tonight. Thank you for having me back, Oh Girls Gone Canon. I appreciate the invite, especially to talk about a really great chapter, and you guys have done great work so far on the Theon chapters, both in Clash and Dance, so I'm happy to take part. Wow, that's some flattery right there. A little bit. The, the poor Quentin with his Theon series. If you guys haven't checked it out, you have to go on Tumblr. Emmett Booth does some great essays on Theon. On... Any chapter that in which Stannis is mentioned, you know I'm going to show up for yeah, I kind of forgot about that. Oh, is that why you picked this no, one? No, he says. Yeah, it sure is. I mean, there were the previous one. There were the previous ones too. You could have had any pick of the last, like two or three chapters too. You know. Suddenly, yep. you understand how my mind. But works. like, there was Stannis and all of those. So I don't, I don't know. Stannis do. is like right around the corner. I think is the big deal. You know, like he's here in his heart in in poor oh Quentin's heart. Yeah, here in this room with us. Oh my God, Stannis is here tonight in this chilies. The real Stannis is the friends we made along the way. Like the Lord. Oh my god. Okay. Oh my god. (laughs) Yes, so of course, along with Stannis being in this episode, there is also a lot of other material, a lot of which is significantly more sensitive. We are going to be discussing issues of sexual assault and abuse in this episode. So please, if you are not comfortable listening to that kind of material, uh, we encourage you to feel free to tune out and come join us another time this week we are covering a ghost in winterfell next week is theon one in a dance with dragons and it's our last public theon episode but patrons five dollars and up can expect theon in the winds of winter coming to them very soon if you're interested in extra content like our winds of winter chapters barristan aria and sansa thematic analysis like our halloween special on identity or our 800 episode series on the blackwater or our dance of the dragons series and a bunch of other fun perks if you climb up our tiers. Please check us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. We're working toward a stretch goal to host a VIP live stream soon, the party of the century, so get that VIP status. And of course, as all of you know, there is some exciting stuff coming up in the A Song of Ice and Fire and A Game of Thrones world. Yes, the first book. No, not the first book world. And we are also, of course, doing another pov after theon and no it's not just going back to reek no it is going to of course tie in closely with the storyline but we're we're gonna save ourselves for a bit yeah we're definitely going to save uh save that pov announcement until next week's episode theon one so you guys will have to sit there very coldly waiting this one out you know for a long time yeah exactly we also Got some emails and tweets of note, particularly from our good friend Warren, aka the Hedge Knight at the moment, over on Twitter about Barbara Dustin and the discussion of her last time. 
Warren asks, I've always felt there's a lot more to her than meets the eye. Her hatred of the Starks seems over the top and makes me query its sincerity. I have absolutely zero evidence, only what they call on cop shows a hunch, but I wonder when push comes to shove, will she prove more loyal to House Stark and its legacy than we are led to believe? I think it's primarily motivated by a sense that the lady protests too much, while well, like I say it's a hunch, I am curious to hear your thoughts. I love the way you're handling these chapters individually, given how scarred Freak is from his time with Ramsay. They're tough to read and merit individual consideration. I'm also beginning to wonder who the next POV is going to be. Thanks again, ladies, for all your hard work. It's always a pleasure to listen. This has been really, really fun having her in these chapters. I, I don't know if I really always appreciated it before. And I think it's really cool that she has this like rebellion connection. We don't get a lot of rebellion connection, right? We don't really remember. I mean, her husband was with Ned at the Tower of Joy. When Ned built those eight cairns, one of those cairns was for Lord Dustin. Barbary's bitterness doesn't just stem from, like, the fact that she gave up that pussy for Brandon. Doesn't just stem from that. She was kind of put up like a mare from her family, like, oh, go get with the Starks. Like, we want you to get with the Starks and bring home that gold. And there's a lot of parallels with Catelyn as far as the feudal society failing them, as far as, you know, like, Barbary wanted to be with Brandon, but Brandon got promised to Cat because of this, you know, Southern Ambitions-esque type thing. And, uh, you know, Cat losing Brandon and being stuck with Ned and Barbary being stuck with Lord Dustin. Ned, you know, ruining her life with her husband dying there. Just all this bitter pain. Really a bummer. Yeah, I'm kind of divided on this question. I do think there's more to Barbie than meets the eye. I do think by the end of her story, she'll eventually have reconciled herself to House Stark and will allow Ned's bones to come home. I think that could be a very moving, perfect encapsulating moment. But uh, hating the phrase and loving the Starks are not quite the same thing. She can hate what happened at the Red Wedding and feel a strong sense of Northern identity and ultimately want to overthrow the Boltons. But she's still feeling some pretty real raw pain over how Stark has, how House Stark has treated her and her family. And I, th I think that's an important perspective to show in A Dance with Dragons when you have all these other Northmen cheering on, you know, Ned Stark's name and wanting to fight for his mem memory and overthrow the hated Boltons. I think it's important to have this complicated perspective in the same way that we're supposed to have a perspective on Tywin where he spends most of his life as this horrible human being, but you still have Kevon who loves him deeply and advocates for him. And I think Martin wants to include those those complicated perspectives. Yeah, I think uh, Warren used this phrase uh the lady protests too much and i was discussing uh our previous episode a little with with uh, your other wife Jeff, yes go on and use similar language <laughs> use similar language um about yeah there's obviously more to barbary dustin than meets the eye she is definitely possibly a transformer and i i think that the fact that we don't know, and as you said, there's that ambiguity of, like, what are her motivations to an extent? Like, because, yes, she can dislike House Stark, but hate House Frey, and that comes through a lot in the chapter we're about to read, is, I think, where Chloe and I feel a little uneasy of, like, we don't have that payoff yet for her character, so we're still a little on the fence about about her deal. I think it's possible she might be interested in seizing power for herself in the North. She like sure. Theon talks about how you could stand in Roose Bolton's way, and she's very pleased by that. She says, you know, as we covered in the Prince of Winterfell chapter, if I were queen, this is what I would do with the Maesters. So I get the sense that might be her ultimate goal, but I don't think that's I don't think it's going to be carried out. I think that might just be what she has in mind for now. 
we did talk again about how she's that that bitter analog to what Jane Poole could have sure. been. You know, I was never as pretty as Sansa, but they still said I was pretty. Barbary Dusty, the lady of the North that never was. And that was just torn away from her with Brandon being promised to cat. Yeah. It's a great parallel to John Connington, too, in terms of these bitter rebels of the of Robert's Rebellion. Bitter veterans of Robert's Rebellion, I should say, who lost the people they were in love with and are just kind of devoted to getting that back in some way or getting back at the people who took it away from them. It was a traumatic moment that none of them have really moved past. And this is a random fact that I'm going to throw in here. Did you know that another definition for the word cairns is a Scottish terrier that has short legs, a longish body, and a shaggy coat? So what if Ned Stark put little dogs? That's that's what I have to say. I know what I want to happen on Endgame. Yeah, a lot of the people... <laughs> A lot, a lot of the people in Robert's Rebellion, you know, like they just haven't moved past it, and we see so much of that in A Song of Ice and Fire. It's like the driving motivation for like half the villains. Yeah, absolutely. Look at Baelish. I mean, just move the fuck on. Or Jamie, or Barristan, or Daron Martell, or Robert himself. Yep. Fucking Barristan. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's a broken it's a broken generation and it i want to see where barbary dustin goes with all that i am hoping that there is a payoff you know the manderlees like dustin have their own motivations you know they're not just propping up rick and out of pure loyalty he's the youngest right if they really cared they prop someone else up well and poor quentin and i i'm at booth and i here we were discussing earlier whomst (laughs) whomst (laughs) <laughs> we were uh, that goes that in. good earlier we were discussing uh offline just discussing how kind of think that Rickon won't come back and I think that it won't be that Rickon dies to our knowledge but I think that Davos will inverse Edric storm and leave Rickon there because bringing Rickon back in the midst of all of this madness is uh, it's not right. All these lords would seize him for power, right? Like they'd be using him for power. Manderly and possibly Barbie Dustin faction would be using him for power and he's better off in the wild with Osha. Yeah, I know? think Davos is going to pretend that he's dead. He's going to come back and say, Rickon Stark, I found his yep. bones or something. Hmm. Which, there you go. That's another very nice parallel to this right here with the Miller's boys. Exactly, and it's a great parallel to what John says about Arya when he thinks that she's come on the Great Horse before he learns it's Alice Karstark that he's going to send her away to Braavos to keep her away from Stannis and the Game of Thrones. <laughs> exactly, it's brutal, but yeah, Davos might make the same call, and that would make Rickon's story a shaggy dog story, but really kind of a, a moving one, so I, I hope that happens. On to our current chapter. As you all know, there are things that happen in this story between the last chapter and this one, so we're going to go through our lightning round. Yeah, I'll kick it off with the King's Prize. Asha Greyjoy is brought to treat with Stannis. Daenerys Seven, the Dornish faction, including my poor son, Quentin Martell, reaches Daenerys too late, and she weds Hisdarzo Lorak on behalf of the people of Marine. John Nine, the Queen's party, arrives at Castle Black. Tycho Nestoris gets a tour. And then this girl on a dying gray horse that maybe we just discussed arrives. Blind Beth plays the lying game with Waif and learns to beg on the streets. She misses being cat of the canals, but deep in her heart, she's still a wolf girl. And that brings us to the ghost in Winterfell. It's a murder mystery in the Winterfell Express. 
Tensions rise in the ruined castle as they wait for Stannis. Meanwhile, a man named Reek prays to die as Theon. The dead man sits at the base of Winterfell's inner wall after he's found in the snow. The dogs find him and pull him out of the snow. Rizwell claims he was a drunk, pissing off the wall likely, but Theon doesn't feel so sure about that one. Yeah, if people can piss off, like, the wall the wall and not fall yeah, off, you know? some foul play. I, I suspect some foul play. The garrison, though, is eating stale bread in bacon grease and whisper about the body. One surgeon thinks that Stannis has men inside the castle. Which, not wrong. I mean, exactly. You know, <laughs> look at, uh, Manderly's gonna probably be taking Stannis faction if it means restoring the north, so... It's a lot like the Blackwater in that way where you had Antler Man and other Stannis loyalists inside King's Landing as he approached. Stannis might have like spies in there, but we've seen Stannis actually literally infiltrate another castle with like himself or whatever. But another Roose Roswell thinks that he's snowed to death by now. And then Kerwin says, like, no way, there's no way for us to know in the storm. Yeah, the storm is insane. There are ropes up to make sure that men don't get lost in that infinite white and ice grows over their weapons and their beards. Hostine Frey was heard to say he wasn't afraid of a little snow and then he loses an ear to frostbite. Get. Yup, bitch. <laughs> so stupid at work. Kinda. <laughs> the horses had it the worst. Oh, in the storm. Their blankets oh. would freeze and then like melt from their body heat and they freeze again if they weren't changed in time. And the war horses were freaking out from the fire, and only the ones in the stable, as limited space as that is, were safe. No, the horses. I know. I, 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 I know. was sad about that. I thought about you. Yeah. That's a parallel to Smiler, you know, catching on fire at the end of Theon's storyline oh, wow. in Clash of Kings. Always the yep. horses suffer in Theon's chapters. Wow, you're right. <laughs> I was also wondering about Hostine Frey. Wasn't there was a it was William Henry Harrison, right? The president who died after a month because he gave a big speech in like a, a snowstorm and refused yeah. to like wear any hats or whatever because I'm just gonna give this big presidential speech. That's Hostine Frey, our shortest lived dumbest president. This entire illustration of the horses and just how miserable everyone is in Winterfell shows that like it's a slow painful march towards death this winter like the invasion of the others in the winter it's going to be devastating but not just because they're hardcore icy necromancer demons which yes they are but like it's how awful these winters are like they just slowly like ruin your horses your weapons fucking suck there's no food and it's not all like sexy action sequences where you're fighting against everyone and everyone gets to like do cool moves and shit like many are going to fall and die without a battle like you don't get to die as like quote unquote a man as theon is talking about in later parts of this chapter but you're gonna just die like sleeping in the fucking snow or when the white like, before the White Walkers even come. That's a great point. You can see that in other parts of the series, too. Like in A Storm of Swords, in Sam's chapters, you have the overwhelming presence of the Army of the Dead that attack the Night's Watch of the Fist of the First Men. But you also have men dying just of the cold and starvation and wandering off in, in fear and despair. And you, you have the, the grounded elements combined with the really strong fantasy elements. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that when we get to the actual Long Night. And you have, yeah, you have plenty of people dying in direct contact with the others, but also, as Old Man's story said, people starve with frozen tears on their cheeks, and there's there's no grand romance or dramatic uplift in that story at all. Yeah, we, we were reminded of that last episode we chatted about 
you know, the men that go out into the cold say they're going to go mm-hmm. hunting to bring food home and they go there to die. Let their families have food. Yeah. But another uh, less survival-focused moment this chapter is the politics, of course. And Ramsay is busy ruthlessly punishing any men who speak of Stannis and his Red Priestess in anything even neutral or above. Yeah, like, we see in this chapter that there's a free rider who's like, I don't know, maybe it's warmer out there with Stannis. And when Ramsay hears that, they're like, that sucks. I don't like that. And they whip him bloody, then throw him off the walls of Winterfell, which they would, for obvious reasons, assume to kill a man. But because... Now that it's becoming winter, the snow is so high, the free rider actually- Is this foreshadowing? Of what? That he survives this fall? I mean, I, I can't imagine anyone in this story who does something I don't like know that. what you ladies are talking about, quite frankly. <laughs> I mean, so yeah, the thing is like, George R. R. Martin threw in this random detail about a guy jumping off a wall and surviving, and it has nothing to do with the rest of the story, and Winterfell's gates are barred and their eyes shut. Oh my god, they are. They are eyes shut. That is the worst. I don't know if you've dealt with that ever, but having a car door ice shut in the winter? Oh, yeah. Uh, that has happened to me many a time. And it oh, is, I'm uh, sure. Back when I lived in Michigan, it was V-sad. V-sad. It's horrible. But their gates are barred and their ice shut. Lord Stannis is lost in the storm, said Lady Dustin. He's leagues away, dead or dying. Let winter do its worst. A few more days and the snows will bury him and his army boat. And us as well, thought Theon, marveling at her folly. Lady Barbary was of the north and should have known better. The old gods might be listening. And indeed they are, as we will learn later in the chapter, when Bran speaks to Theon from the Weir, where the old gods are very present in this chapter. And I like this conflict going on between the old gods and R'hllor for control of the north, which we see mm-hmm. elsewhere in A Dance with Dragons, like when we, uh, the sacrifice at Asha's chapter. And how the Northmen with their gods are constantly resisting the Southron knights with their god. And it's interesting that, for the most part, R'hllor is talked about by Stannis' enemies as this, like, propaganda coup they can use against him. Like, he's worshipping this horrible foreign god that demands sacrifice and can use that as to turn the small folk against him. But it's also, it's being used as a propaganda coup for him in this chapter. Because everyone's like, oh, he has this fire god on his side. Maybe he can get through the snows. Maybe we're screwed and not him. Theon is eating peas porridge when one of Abel's washerwomen touch him, and then he, like, freaks out. He's whispering, don't touch me. Like, he says, never touch me, but, you know, it's a mood. She's young and pretty with blonde hair and pouty lips, and it's Holly. Just like last week with the Rowan tree, I love that there is just this theme, right? This etymology of all these names, because there's Rowan, there's Holly, there's Squirrel, there's Willow, there's Witch Eye, there's Frenya, and there's Myrtle. Yes, I I love that you've been like pointing these out because it sparked an epiphany for me about how like all the names that you just pointed out, as well as like we also meet Gilly, right, from the Free Folk, and Egret, whose name is spelled a little differently, but it sounds or looks like the word Egret, which is a type of bird. Gilly's named after the Gilly flower. It gives you a bit of wildling culture, showing you how they tend to name their people, right, after different things in nature, in the same way that you have that consistency with the Valyrian culture with all of that A sounds, the A, the A yeah. names. Of course, the etymology of Holly's name is interesting once more, because George is surrounding this with, you know, like, kind of that martyr feel. After we talked about the Rowan tree last week, Holly berries in religious lore a lot of times, like in Christianity, they're originally white, but Christ's blood stains the berries red. Its leaves represent the crown of thorns that he wore before he died. 
In Celtic mythology, the Holly King is said to rule half of the year covered in holly bushes and leaves, and he wields a weapon of a holly bush. And it's also said to protect hmm. the home from fairies or to bring peace between the factions. The whole idea of the Holly King is kind of like, kind of inclined for people to believe that he's supposed to be the Green Knight in Arthurian legend. That's what he's based on. All these characters, the Rowan tree, the holly, the sacrificial martyrdom kind of thing. And that fits Theon so well because he's being made in large part to suffer not only for his own sins, but all the sins of his people and all the kind of shame and anger that the Northerners feel in general about what's happened to them. And they just they just put it all on him. So yeah, I think that, that symbolism fits him perfectly. Yeah, it's really great. And especially, yeah, again, with all that religious imagery. Holly wants Theon to show her the crypts. And Theon slash is like, I know that Abel sent her and is asking her what she wants and holly plays coy but theon's like i don't want anything to do with them and so he leaves the hall into the swirling snow perhaps inspired by uh, that free rider earlier theon's like uh i kind of want to jump from the battlements and i know i guess i could break a leg like he did or maybe i'll even like die in the freezing cold and he thinks immediately that Ramsay would hunt him down if he did survive and whispers instead of deciding to jump off the wall that I have to remember my name. The next morning, Amy's phrase squire is found frozen and dead. Later, an archer from Flint's faction is found dead, kicked by a horse, Ramsay says, but Theon knows better. He thinks on how it's a mummer's show that he knows. Roose Bolton was playing the part that Theon had played the last time round, and the dead men were playing the parts of Agar, Gynir Rednose, and Gelmar the Grim. Reek was there too, he remembered, but he was a different Reek, a Reek with bloody hands and lies dripping from his lips, sweet as honey. Reek, Reek, it rhymes with sneak. Yeah, this is great, because you start seeing a parallel here, not only to Theon's former chapters in Winterfell and A Clash of Kings, which you guys covered, but also Arya's chapters in Harrenhal in The Clash of Kings, which also had this murder list going on with her and Jock and Hagar. And mm. what that suggests, I think, is that Winterfell has become like Harrenhal. It is this ruined, haunted castle now, covered in snow and full of conspiracies and, and death and this sense of decay. It's no longer the warm hearth and home that Theon and the Starks remember and cherish so much that we're seeing Winterfell through this kind of lens of cynicism and downfall and... With Theon and Arya in A Clash of Kings, we were seeing those murders from the perspective of the one ordering the death. So you get questions of guilt and escalation and corruption. But this is different because our POV is not involved and doesn't really care. So that, that's the overall mood that I really love about this chapter and Theon's chapters and Winterfell as a whole. Is We're seeing all these interesting factional fights and the struggle for control of the North. But we're specifically seeing it from someone with no investment who is kind of... Just so detached from it. It's kind of like Tyrion in, in Dance, where he's seeing the factions fight for control of Essos, but he's he's so outside it because he's so far gone by that point. And I think this, this functions as a great critique of all the sides involved here, because we're more inclined to favor the Stark loyalists over the Boltons. And while certainly Stannis does a lot of horrible things, he's generally more favored by the fandom than Roos. But for Theon... Stannis is just another tormentor, and even the Stark loyalists hate him arguably more than even the Boltons do. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. And there's like a lot in this chapter that shows how too many people, not just Theon, the two are just the same side, different sides of the same coin. I have a crazy tinfoil question. Do you guys think, you know, now that you're pointing out these 
similarities between the situation in Harrenhal and Winterfell that like maybe Roos has brought a curse or something from being Lord of Winterfell into a Lord Lord of Harrenhal into Winterfell. I mean, he's carrying that curse from the Red Wedding. Everything he does is stained in blood. Oh, that's true. You're right. Because they, they violated guest right. It's so funny for someone so superstitious that he's willing to break all of these rules. And he violated this guest right, and now guest right yeah. is being violated in his new keep, right? So you look at these mm. people dying, you look at everything happening in Winterfell, you look at uh, the phrase being murdered and put into these pies, you know, tinfoil, or not so tinfoil as we know, because the Rat King. I mean, uh, it's he's this is coming back to haunt him bit by bit, and now... The ghost in Winterfell is picking off people bit by bit, you know? It does feel like the ghosts of the Red Wedding are here and are taking their revenge for sure. And Theon, when he was feeling that huge guilt over what he did to the Miller's boys back in Clash of Kings, he had that vision of the Red Wedding, of Rob and Grey Wind coming in, mm. bleeding from half a hundred wounds. And no one, you know, I've seen plenty of theories, but no one can really explain in the fandom why or how Theon had that vision. But it's just, it's there to make this connection. I think you, you see the payoff for it here. I think that's so interesting that you pointed out how a lot of this stems from his sins that he committed at the Red Wedding because I've seen people discuss, you know, the veracity of the claims that things like guest right or kinslaying actually have any effect because we don't necessarily see people suffer the consequences. But maybe we do, maybe we don't, maybe it's not the way we expect them and you can see that accursedness still following them it's su- subtly. Obviously, Roose Bolton has to die. I mean, that's going to happen. Ramsey has to die. The regime has to die. And especially where this chapter, I mean, we're about to get into where Barbary Dustin delivers one of the biggest lines that we've already heard when we had Davos with Lord Manderley, you know, the North remembers. It's it's this bitter line. It's this defiant line. It's this, you know, you beat the North down, you murdered them. Like, all these people died because of the Red Wedding that Roose basically helped happen, you know? Uh, it's it's all going to come crashing down eventually, and this is all kind of that build-up, that crescendo, so you will. Chloe, I have something for you. I didn't put any quotes or anything this time. Crazy, I just wanted to surprise you. Oh about my god. Dying. Oh, you're not even going to be prepared for what I'm going to surprise you with. So I can't I was, believe you're doing this to me. I was getting on the... Oh, but you're going to be so pleased when I do this. All right, so I was getting on the bus the other day and thinking about Roos and Ramsey, and I was like... Thinking about how, you know, there are people who have talked about how there are different acts, right? There's an act one, two, three, or act one, two, three, four, five, depending on like how you split the story and see certain plot points breaking down. And in act one, Joffrey is very much the villain, right? And and the Red Wedding is, of course, a turning point for many in the storyline. And Tywin dies off. But we're introduced to Roos as a villain earlier than Ramsay, and his payoff in many ways is the Red Wedding, right? We start getting introduced to Roos in late game and then in A Clash of Kings. So Ramsay comes to the forefront as a villain in Dance, which means he comes in later than Roos, which might actually mean that Roos's time is over. So, um, you know, I think what I'm trying to say here is like, what if Ramsay... What if Ramsay survives Roos as um, a more of Act 2 villain because Roos's time is up? Did you see that coming? So you agree. Yeah, I was saying structurally, I think, what, but what if, what if Chloe's right? That's going a little far, Ileana. <laughs> Next episode, there's something we're going to talk about even more. And I won't really try to like pop a quote or anything, but there's this moment where Ramsay's arguing with his dad and Dion can't make out the words, but... 
fat Walda's round pink face, like, is super fearful, and it's just this moment where, like, there's this dread, like, what's happening? The arguing doesn't look very good up on that dais, and I'm, uh, that whole entire time, with the tensions, they start really escalating, and then next episode's gonna be like, ah, ah, what's gonna happen, which we know. That's, yeah, that's the money quote, I think, especially since that's the chapter where we learn that fat Walda's pregnant. I don't think it's yep. going to play out exactly like it did in the show, but that seems like really strong yeah, setup. But yeah, as you say, that chapter has a lot of the the payoff for the dissension we see being sown here. Hostine Frey goes actively after Manderly in that chapter, but you see the anger building in this chapter. Oh, so all of this dissentment that's being sowed, they're starting to argue and fight because of the deaths. And lords like Hostine want to take the battle to Stannis, and Roos Riswell does not agree, right? They keep sending people out who never come back, he says. And I, I love that little added note that George has that his name is Roos Rizbell. It's the mm-hmm. only other Roos in the story besides Roos Bolton. And it's a northern naming development. It's really safe to say that Roos Rizbell was named for Roos Bolton because he's probably Barbary's youngest brother. Uh, you look at Roderick naming one of his sons Rickard after, you know, selling Barbary's vagina to Brandon Stark. <laughs> and... I just love watching this come up, like with the Frey and Targaryen name mm. schemes, uh, it just the currying of favor and all that. Yeah, I don't know if that really curries favor if people are just like, "Ooh, you're too thirsty," but whatever. The it's kind of suck upy, in my opinion. Yeah. Like I'm not gonna name my daughter Eliana unless like I really really like Eliana. I mean, it's fine if you do. Every time someone tells me that they're about to have a child or are pregnant, I'm always pushing. Like, what if you named your kid Eliana? So. Oh my god. Uh, the tensions are raised in Winterfell, and Manderly actually offers to ride out with Hostine and company, but then Hostine, surprise, <laughs> turns on him. Yeah. He's like, where are my kin? They went to White Harbor and rode out from there, and they're not here. And- yeah, and they, he tries to act like it's some kindness. He's like, they brought your son's bones back, but now they've disappeared. And then Manderly goes off. I recall them well. Rhaegar of the round shoulders with his glib tongue. Bold so Jared so swift to draw his steel. Simon the spymaster always clinking coins. They brought home Wendell's bones. It was Tywin Lannister who returned wireless to me, safe and whole as he had promised. Man of his word, Lord Tywin, seven save his soul. Lorne Wyman popped the meat into his mouth, chewed it noisily, smacked his lips, and said, The brood has been dangerous, sir. I gave your brother's guest gifts when we took our leave of White Harbor. We swore you would meet again at the wedding. Many and more bore witness to our pardon. Yeah, they sure fucking did, Manderly. <laughs> you made sure of that. What a what a penchant for drama, like for I dramatic know. flair. Manderly is such a drama queen. I love it. Wyman Manderly is the best. You can just see everything he says in Theon's dance chapters. It's like, screw you all. I'm going down calling you out for all, all that you are. And that, that is a glorious thing to see, especially since, you know, so many people are have, have to hold their tongues around the Freys and the Boltons and the Lannisters at this point. So uh, seeing Wyman uh, sass the Boltons and the Freys, it's the same thing when, like, when Marjorie says in Cersei's last chapter in Feast when she finally calls out Cersei as just being the horrible person she is. There's that, that great catharsis there with someone finally telling these guys off. 
Yeah, I they really. I'm surprised they didn't put Manderly in the show. He was perfect for th- for these sorts of comedies. He's so cinematic. Oh, and like as you were saying about how like all of his sass, I like how he his way of describing each of these phrases that were with him. He just like defines them by like literally their most annoying characteristics. Like he's like that guy was a smartass, and that guy was like super aggressive and trying to fight off everyone. And that guy was super nosy, and also he was always clinking his coins and showing off his money. Like they sucked. That doesn't help your case but he's totally like dressing the words up you know yeah and like diplomatically presenting them and dressing them up with lies at Arbor gold but he's just like i ate your fucking kin and so did you he kind of reminds me of varus that way especially like when varus has his crocodile tears going mm-hmm. and he's like oh i can't find tyrick lannister who knows where that boy went i certainly didn't kidnap him get direct <laughs> uh yeah and it it's, goes back to what you were saying earlier, Chloe, about like the sins again of the the red budding following them because this is that guest right shit coming back round. You don't fuck with the North, man. Mm-hmm. You just don't. You know, like you can get it over on them. You can kill people off in the North. That's cool. You could stab Rob Stark at a fucking wedding feast at his uncle's wedding, but. That doesn't mean you're going to get one over on the north in the long run. Mm-hmm. And sure. it's so great because uh, Godric Burrell in Davos's first chapter said, Wyman Manderley's no true Northman, not deep down. The Manderleys are outsiders and fakes. They, you know, they're Southerners who follow the faith of the Southern, but this is Wyman proving himself the Northern race of all Northmen. It's awesome. Yeah, because when we were hungry, you know, and cold, the Starks took us in. When we were sore, beset, and friendless, and, and hounded for our lives. Yeah, that's such great stuff. Exactly. It's so, ah. Uh, so cinematic. I am so mad they left it out, especially because they put him in with a really shitty Jon Snow Avenged the Red Wedding. He's the white love. What? No, he didn't. Literally, Ramsay Bolton did that. <laughs> Ramsay right? Bolton fucking avenged the Red Wedding in the oh TV show Game of Thrones. That's canon. So I don't know what the fuck that scene they added was. They, they changed their canon. And again, who's the one rebuilding Winterfell? It's the Boltons. It's the Boltons. <laughs> I don't. I am a fucking Bolton Stanner man. Oh I don't God. know what you're saying. So are you for Bolton or Stannis? Our blades though? are sharp. Our of- blades are sharp. Our blades are sharp. How can you be both a Bolton and a Stannerman? Uh, as we see Seth. here, they are opposite. They are different, <laughs> Chloe, but also not too different. So, Anis implies Manderly is a murderer again, and Manderly puffs up. He's like, "Excuse me, how dare you?" <laughs> In front of my salad? In front of my salad? <laughs> Hostine challenges Manderly, and Manderly booms with laughter, and, like, a fight starts to break out. It takes Lady Dustin and Roger Riswell to calm them down, separate them, ease the tension. And this ties in with Theon's POV kind of outside the politics, as we mentioned earlier. We see all these factions going to war with each other, but our POV is not someone who's on any particular side. This is very different from Arya's POV in Harrenhal, where she's uh, defiantly a Stark partisan, even as she's gradually being shown that Stark soldiers are doing horrible things too. She definitely wants one side to win this war, and Theon could not possibly care less. And we're going to get into a little later who the actual killers of these, these dead men in Winterfell might be, but I think it's probable that whoever it is, they're definitely trying to cause this factional outrage and have people turn on each other in Winterfell. That night, the stable collapses from snow, and they clean it out, finding dead men everywhere, and they kill the horses. Oh. And as soon as they're done, I know, another is pronounced dead. Classic horror film vibes, like we've been saying. Like, very macabre, very murder mystery. Very noir as well, in the sense that he can't trust anybody, and there's a killer around every corner. There's that great line in Clash, which you guys covered, where one of the Ironborn tells Theon, look, we're ready to fight anybody in battle, but this weird suspense of anyone might kill us at any moment, we're not trained for that. We can't handle that. Oh, yeah. 
And of course, the person that dies turns out to be Yellow Dick, one of Ramsey's favorites. Yellow Dick. Bruce tells the men burn the body and to never speak of it. Ramsey, though, betrays that easily, and he's like, it was my man, all right? This guy wasn't my friend, so he's super pissed. He's going around telling everyone, like, I will flay the skin off him and cook it crisp as crackling and make him eat it every bite. Mm. Uh, regarding the so, person who killed so, Yellow Dick. Such subtlety and nuance in George R. R. Martin's villains, you guys. Yeah, but I mean, I think that what we're trying to see here is, right, the humanity and, like, the heroism behind Ramsey. Oh my god. <gasps> Our hero, Ramsey Bolton. Not Snow. Bolton. A trueborn son. I, but as you said, he avenged the Red Wedding, so. Again, as we'll discuss later, who might be responsible for the killings, I think it's worth noting that it would be, it would be symbolically compelling if women who describe themselves as ironically, quote, here to be fucked, not feared, are killing a guy named Dick. Yeah. Just, just putting that out there. Love it. I love it. I mean, if they're the washerwomen, they're washing Winterfell of all these, all this dirt. Oh, they're scrubbing it clean. Yeah. Uh, no scrubs. By nightfall, the Great Hall is disgusting, and there are men, horses, and there's like dog shit and human shit, all kinds of shit. All sorts of shit everywhere. It's all in this room. And along with that, the cooks are now serving horse meat. It's like fucking Ikea up in here. And onions and neeps for soldiers and lords alike. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of the situation in Marine in A Dance with Dragons. This kind of chaos and everyone's kind of crammed in together. Tensions are rising. There's sickness. There's starvation. You're eating whatever you've got on hand. As Eliana was alluding to earlier, this, is, I think, is Martin's presentation of humanity on the brink of winter and war and eventually the others. Like, this this is the best it's going to be, and it's only going to get worse from this here. This is kind of basically just like the siege on Storm's End, again. Ooh. Because, I mean, yes. that was, remember, as we talked about last episode, the fall spring ends, and it's full-out winter for a fortnight or so. You know, it's straight up, like, a horrible winter for a few But Stannis is on the outside this time, which yeah. is ironic. The same thing that happened, and actually, at Storm's End and the Clash of Kings, when he ended up on the outside of Storm's well, End. Well, it's funny, because in a few chapters, I don't know if it was last chapter or the chapter before, Theon is thinking that, yes, Stannis could do that to Winterfell, but he's also thinking that Stannis has less stores, and he's thinking, oh, we can starve Stannis out, but, like, everyone knows Stannis is willing to be starved out, right? He's willing to, like, yeah. go down I'm to pretty the sure line. Stannis doesn't need food. I'm pretty sure Stannis, like, feeds on resentment. And anger. I mean, like, I don't think he needs actual sustenance to survive. Big mood, as they say, and by they, I mean Chloe, but for me also, like, yeah, I, I think it's interesting because they're, like, trying to be like, we're going to siege the seizures, but whatever. That, yeah. that sounds weird when I say it aloud, actually, when I say seizures aloud. I'm, we're going to siege the people sieging. There we go. You're doing great. Thank you. <laughs> Earlier in the chapter, the common men were eating peas porridge. Yeah, and... In this room where everyone's fucking nasty, right? Like, it shows that along with Winter being this quiet killer and not just flashy stuff, like, Winter is in many ways going to be the great equalizer in Westeros because, like, they describe the room as being, like, the reek within the Great Hall was palpable but even tied. And so everyone's become the Bolton's playthings. But, like, when there are no resources, everyone's fucking poor, okay? Everyone's just got to eat what they got. Yeah, that's why you see the clansmen doing so well on the march with Stannis, more so than the Southrun knights with their fancy armor and all their stuff. The clansmen do well because all they got is the, their uh, snowshoes, and they're good to go. And they have their small horses. 
They're Their adorable small horses, small horses do better in the snow than the big horses, apparently. Shaggy little ponies. Oh. Exactly. Well, unfortunately, their horses are dwindling as well at Winterfell. As True. they had to slaughter those horses for food. From, uh, you know, when they were half dying in the stables earlier. Theon can't eat the horse meat because of his teeth. So he's like just sucking the juice out of the tiny pieces after mashing up the onions and meats until they're basically edible. Yeah, he then feeds the bones of the horse meat to the dogs, the doggos. And then Grey Jane is super pleased. She takes off with it and the other dogs snap at her heels. And I'm just like, the dogs are going to love him after that. The mm-hmm. dogs are like the, the the ray of light in Theon's very, very they dark really dance are. dragon storyline. Like they're the only pleasant part. Like they're not pleasant when they're hunting him and like the women, but oh like, lord, no, good point. But I mean, like the true. fact that they love him and actually seem to enjoy his presence is very sweet. If love and hate can mate, the dogs can be both scary and the best. Oh my god, nailed it. <laughs> so Abel plays through his entire set list, right? Iron lances, winter maid, the queen took off her sandal, the king took off her crown, his crown, the bear and the maiden fair. Yes, I want lyrics to all these songs, and they don't exist. The bastard boys then threaten Threek. Lord Ramsay means to cut your lips off when all this is done, said Damon, stroking his whip with a greasy rag. Ew. (laughs) So gross. Don't cut yourself on all that edge. Reek thinks that he had committed a crime by having his mouth between the Lady Arya's legs, and that he deserves that punishment that Damon just talked about, so he agrees with him that he should do that. Ugh. It's just another another example of that abuse and how that's warped Theon's mind because like he's like yeah I deserve being punished for a crime that I was forced to do by the person who's doling out the t- the punishment. What? Yeah. No, Theon. No. Outside, the snow was coming down so heavily that Theon could not see more than three feet ahead of him. Mm-hmm. He found himself alone in a white wilderness, walls of snow looming up to either side of him, chest high. When he raised his head, the snowflakes brushed his cheeks like, a, like cold, soft kisses. He could hear the sound of music from the hall behind him. A soft song now, and sad. For a moment, he felt almost at peace. Damn, there's some strong Sansa and Storm of Swords echoes right there. Oh, yeah. Mm. So. Yes. Perfect world. I don't belong here. But she stepped out all the same. Yeah, I also see Rob with those cold, soft kisses on the snowflakes, because I think, Chloe, you were talking about that last episode or something. Yes, absolutely. The innocence lost and all of that. So Theon comes across a hooded man out on the battlements, and the man calls him Theon Turncloak, Theon Kinslayer. He asks how Theon is still alive, and Theon replies the gods are not done with him yet, and Lord Ramsay is not either. And the man laughs and leaves him be. And obviously this is like a huge moment and people discuss it all the time in the fandom and we'll like get there, all right, we'll get there. But first we're going to talk about how like in this exchange, like it's it's a lot of what we've been saying since like the previous chapter and the ones before that, like this idea of the gods aren't done with Theon and neither is Lord Ramsay. It's equating both like these gods and Ramsay, right? They're equal to Theon. And it has another meaning, of course, again, and we'll talk about it later on, and how we see Bran, who is now an old god, seemingly having a purpose for Theon. Yeah, that's the other big theme and kind of genre of this chapter. We've talked about the murder mystery trappings and how it's kind of horror and kind of noir, but religion is really a strong through line in this chapter. You have Ramsay as this punishing god whom Theon thinks of as 
giving him his, his just due for his sins, but that also kind of prevents Theon from dealing with what he's done because he just gets to externalize it all onto what Ramsay is doing. And Bran is this more savior figure who's offering Theon a way out. And Stannis, as we'll get into a, into a bit, is kind of this more ambiguous figure where he's a, a savior god to his men, but he's a, a punisher god for his enemies. Theon can't see past the moat. He trudges through the snow. The world is gone. King's Landing, River Run, Pipe, the Iron Islands, all the Seven Kingdoms, every place that he had ever known, every place that he had ever read about or dreamed of, all gone. Only Winterfell remained. He was trapped here with the ghosts. The old ghosts from the crypts and the younger ones that he made himself. Micken and Farlin, Veneer Rednose, Agar, Galmar the Grim, the miller's wife from Acornwater, and her two young sons, and all the rest. My work, my ghosts. They are all here. They are angry. He thought of the crypts and those missing swords. Remember what Tyrion said after the Blackwater looking over the bodies. My work, they died at my command. And I, I love this, that Theon is comparing his own sins and the people he's killed to the crypts and the old ghosts of Winterfell. Because again, that's so like Harrenhal, where we see this the horrible history and backstory of Harrenhal being folded into the modern-day actions of characters who are in charge of Harrenhal or pass through the castle. And you have these very personal ghosts for Theon. I love this this imagery of the rest of the world vanishing and you know, death creeping in from the outside. That fits Theon's arc so well of feeling like he's lost the world and lost his dreams and his future life. It fits with the imagery around Stannis. Again, this is a lot like the Blackwater when everyone is talking about Stannis as this coming death god to judge them all. And of course, it fits with the coming of the others, that this is what it's going to feel like when the army of the dead arrives outside Winterfell. Yeah, Stannis definitely has that stranger kind of symbolism about him. Theon then reaches his chambers, and he's ready to change out of this soaked clothing when Steelshanks finds him. And he takes Theon to Bruce and the other lords, and then the northern faction's like, oh, Theon, maybe you killed everyone. It's like, Yeah, oh, you have the motive. What? What the fuck? Like, <sighs> Lady Dustin makes him remove his gloves to reveal his missing fingers, and that Ramsay did this to him, despite Theon's protests that it was his choice. Amy's phrase still tries to push this whole, oh, it's you that killed the people, but Barbary laughs, and she's like, dude, he can't hold a dagger. Like, what, what are you saying? Are you drunk? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, anus. Yeah, yeah, anus. <laughs> yeah, <What> butt. <laughs> exactly, you. That's the joke. Good job on it. Poop Thank hole. You. Okay, I'm done. Oh my god. Anyways, but five. it's just like, so everyone knew. So like, this whole time in these past few chapters, right? So everyone like just knew. It just baffles me that everyone knew that underneath the gloves he was missing fingers. Anyways, and they thought like by booking him as the killer that would help them. Like, the killer would still be out there, even if you want to blame it on Theon. And that's where the whole idea of political stuff comes in. Like, they don't want people to freak out. They need everyone to stay calm. Like, Roos and Ramsay are holding on to this goddamn faction, like, by a string. They need everyone to stay fucking calm. And this is not what they need. Like, just like Roos <laughs> was going around. They need a scapegoat, and Theon is very convenient for that because everyone already hates him. And that would be especially useful for Aenys Frey because... The murders are, have got to be under his collar more than anybody because he knows how unwelcome he and his family are in the north. They, he, he and Hostin clearly know that Wyman had their kin killed. They don't know about the pies, but they know who did it. So oh, they, they would love if they could just pass off this thing that's bothering them onto this one uh, pariah whom everyone already hates. Well, and you see Roos earlier in the chapter, you know, trying to hide the death of Yellow Dick. So now this is happening and they're just trying to find a way to keep everyone calm and keep the alliances secure. 
Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, and and so we have then Roger Riswell agreeing. They're like, yeah, I don't think Theon's our killer. He can't do anything. And then they're like, it's an inside man, a Stannis. Accusations shift to Manderly. And Barbary agrees that he totally has beef with the regime, citing he lost Ken at the Red Wedding. But she reminds them that so did everyone else that's here, which is just such a badass moment. The Sirwins, mm-hmm. the Tallhearts, even Umbers, she points to Horsebane. Roger backs her up and he's like, yeah, House Riswell lost as well. And then Barbie drops the most badass line. Even Dustin's out of Barrowton. Lady Dustin parted her lips in a thin, barrel smile. The North remembers, Ray. What, what? Air horns! <laughs> I was waiting for you to do the air horns. I got there. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. I love, I love that line. That she had a feral smile. So cute. I don't know if cute's the word. So cute. I don't know if that's quite the right word, but sure. It's cute to me, all right? It's uh, art subjective. Just like, you know, whether or not Quentin's alive or editing that out. Um, Get out. My podcast now. (laughs) You're the Emmett that is in here. I'm the actual Emmett. Yeah, like, it's great that she drops that line because we've seen it already throughout Dance with Dragons and associated, obviously, with people who seem to be on one side of the line and like i have many thoughts on the north remembers in general as a phrase but we'll talk about them some other time another time another episode and you know as uh warren was talking about earlier as some of our other friends have discussed like we get hints at dustin's other purpose and motivations here and i do love what she says about horsebane that he would pull out your entrails and make you eat them uh, the umbers are always in the background as like even the other northerners go like we might be we might be tough and badass but the umbers scare even us uh, they always make a, a great use in scenes that way and yeah I do love the accusation that's it's an inside man of Stannis says, guys if Stannis wants someone dead he sends a horrifying shadow demon he doesn't hire an assassin the man the yeah. man has an aesthetic to keep up yeah he's gonna skeet his own assassin you know yeah. true that okay sorry everyone <laughs> so he awakes at the hour of the wolf and he hears the horn. It hangs above the battlements and moves through Winterfell, followed by whispers of Stannis. Boom, doom, boom, doom, boom, doom. And a name passed from the lips of each man to the next, written in small white puffs of breath. Stannis, they whispered, Stannis is here. Stannis has come. Stannis, Stannis, Stannis. Emmett, down boy. <laughs> I wasn't mouthing that along with you. Not at all. <laughs> oh my god. I knew you were. I could hear you. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, I'm going to give a really quick thought here, then step aside that like the onomatopoeia is kind of fun, that boom doom. I don't know if it's a little heavy-handed, but it's, it's cute. Just like feral smile. It's very Lord of the Ringsy. It's very the Minds of Moria, which Martin has drawn from a couple oh, yeah. of times. All right, go uh, on. Yeah, this is so great. I... I, I, I really just love this. It's such a perfect inversion of what happened at the Wall at the end of Storm of Swords when Stannis' knights ride over the wildling camp yelling, Stannis, Stannis, Stannis! You know, it was, it was his own men crying his name thrice then, and it was joyfully. And now it's his enemies, and so they're whispering his name thrice in fear. As we were saying earlier, Stannis is the stranger. He was Sansa directly compared Stannis to that in Clash of Kings. He's an avatar of dread for his enemies. You can see that in Book 1 with Tywin when he's saying that Stannis is always the one he thought was more dangerous than the rest of his enemies combined. And it, it, you back, see that backed up with Theon when you get to his released Winds of Winter chapters you guys are going to be talking about soon. He says to himself he's just traded one tormentor for another when he winds up in Stannis' camp. 
because as far as he's concerned, Stannis is, is just another abuser. And that dovetails with the prologue to this book from Varimir Sixkin's perspective when he talks about how all the wildlings fled from Stannis' camp. And that's the flip side to Stannis' glorious victory. Like, yeah, he was saving the Night's Watch and coming to defend the North and, and doing a better job as king. But functionally speaking, he was still overrunning a refugee camp. So I think this is all part of how Martin is constantly making the case for and against Stannis, often at the same time. He shows you why the men who follow him do, but also why his enemies are so freaked out by him. Yeah. But hey, at least people are taking him seriously. He wanted that, right? But I think deep down he wants to be admired and loved, but it is. Deep down he wants Robert to come back to life, clap him on the shoulder and say, you did oh. good. And then Stannis can no, die happy. Right. That's no, really what right. he wants. That is what he oh. wants. Oh, brothers. Oh. Well, unfortunately, Theon knows better and he thinks no one's going to win in any of this. Stannis is aligned with John, another bastard who could as soon see and want Theon dead. Plucked from the clutches of one bastard to die at the hands of another. What a jape. Interesting that... Oh, Ellie. Uh, <laughs> oh, hello. It's our, it's our other host. Oh, yes. It's our, it's our host. producer slash host. It's our executive yeah. producer, Ellie. She, she just woke up. She's the owner of this podcast. Yeah, she's you know, literally our... She gets, she's the CFO. LLC. She gets 60% of the... Shareholders, yeah. Proceeds, yep. yeah. No wonder she's but, so fat. It's interesting that Theon thinks John would hurt him. Yeah. I, yeah. As I was saying, it's great how Theon views these factions. Like, we're inclined to see John positively, for the most part. But for Theon, he's just another enemy who would punish him as soon as Ramsay. And that's an important perspective. Again, similar to Tyrion, where he's seeing all these factions in Essos from a very jaundiced, cynical perspective. Jaundiced? And, uh, compare with the... Uh, ah, okay. I get it. I lo- compare what Theon says here, Baratheon or Bolton, it made no matter to him. That's very similar to what John says in his fourth chapter, Baratheon or Bolton should be the same to me. But in John's case, he's lying to himself because he's telling himself, oh, you should stop advising Stannis and stop helping him to win the war. These should be the same to you. You're in the Night's Watch. But they're not. Because for John, quote, Stannis fights for the realm. And while he's not all down with the whole burning people alive thing... As, is, as he shouldn't be, he repeatedly intervenes on Stannis' behalf, and he has warm feelings about the king marching on Winterfell to save Arya. But for Theon, Stannis is just another angry, violent man with a sword fucking up his day. He's not the messiah. He's not, quote, a king who still cared, as Sam called him. He's just an asshole who hangs him off a wall. For sure. And in some ways, I guess that makes Theon a little closer to that perspective of not all, but some of the small folk who are just like, I don't know, there's just like these people like fucking fighting around here and we're caught up in it. For them, it's like, who cares? But I think there's also something interesting here that ties into the ways that the story shows similarities between Ned and Stannis. Like, obviously, you know, they're both kind of a sullen middle sons. But also, of course, Stannis is the king that Ned supported. And while I think Stannis is portrayed more as this idea of justice or just, depending on whatever your skill that is, as opposed to merciful, which is Ned. Um, mm-hmm. Even though, you know, like Stannis isn't known for his mercy. Like, he's kind of playing that in-between role for Theon, right? Because in a way, Stannis is in this in this in-between space where he's portrayed as both Theon's salvation but also his imprisonment same as it was for Ned where Theon was like this ward hostage he's both the end of Theon's A Dance with Dragon art A Dance with Dragons art has so much of that like 
no chance, no choice, Brienne art. You know, it's it, it, damned if you do, damned if you don't. Either you're going to die flayed by the Boltons or you're going to die beheaded by Stannis. What's the difference at this point? Hmm. And I think you're right, Eliana. In so many ways, Stannis is cast as this darker version of Ned. You see that in his introduction in Clash of Kings where we've just lost Ned Stark and now we see this kind of version of him that's much sourer and without mercy and, and focused on his resentments. And yeah, well, Stannis is technically the savior fixture, figure structurally here in that if Theon wants to escape the Boltons, Stannis is pretty much his only chance of doing that. It's Yeah, it's not like Theon cares about Stannis's cause or has any reason to invest in it or is treated better at the end of the day. So there's drumming outside the walls, and then a flint asks, uh, so that guy, Stannis, that we've just been talking about, does he mean to blow the walls down? And jokes that maybe Stannis thinks that he's found the Horn of Joramin. That's almost like Martin wants to keep this horn, horn thing in mind. There's a mm-hmm. horn? What horn? And Why do we need a horn? We have a whole ice star again. <laughs> The, the idea of Stannis wanting to bring down the walls of Winterfell, and of course that reminder, as you said, of the Horn of Jormund, it's all like kind of, since we're talking about religion in this episode, I'm not going to go into too much depth, but it reminds me of that story of Joshua and the Battle of Jericho. Oh yeah, those walls are tumbling down. Yes. Maybe we should sing that, like when it happens, I don't know, whatever. The book's okay. And then someone is out here being like, well... Though, Stannis can't, because Stannis is no Robert. Which I'm like, damn, like, if Stannis heard you saying that, he'd probably, like, I don't know, crumple on the floor and cry. But, like, that's one way to rub salt in the wound. He'd probably stare out of the window. (laughs) That's the great thing. Even when he shows up at the wall, as I was just talking about, his big triumphant center stage moment, even then, for a second, John thinks it's Robert. Because he sees the banners, he's like, what? It was Owen right? Did, jo- did Robert show up? So oh even then, Stannis is still in Robert's shadows. It's, it's, it's the greatest thing. And even this, like, it's actually yeah. not him outside the walls. Like, that's actually Moore's umber. They're just all assuming it's Stannis. Afray suggests riding out to meet Stannis, and Theon is like, yes, do it. Leave me alone in Winterfell with my goddamn ghosts. <laughs> do it. Theon thinks Roos would welcome this as well, with a castle too full of Northmen, who only are following him for Arya, who want to murder the shit out of the Boltons. He wonders if he should go out and fight as well, you know, to, to die a man, something Ramsay wouldn't give him, but Roos might. Death was the sweetest deliverance he could hope for. Mm, that hurts. Theon then makes his way over to the godswood, and in the godswood, there's a there's this fog, and it's like warm, and there's a steam in the pools. Like maybe it's the only warm place in Winterfell, and Theon has it all to himself. But like that fog is it? Is it fog? Is it is it gray? I I don't know. What? Tell me. Tell me. Chloe. Is it? Tell me about. Is the it fog. gray mist? Maybe. Is it? Is that maybe. That? Oh, okay. Well, interesting. Interesting. I mean, I mean, just curious. Is it? Curious. Is it? Is it? You tell me. <laughs> the night was windless. The snow drifting straight down out of a cold black sky. Yet the leaves of the heart tree were rustling his name. Theon. They seemed to whisper. Theon. The old gods. He thought they know me. They know my name. I was Theon of House Greyjoy. I was a ward of Eddard Stark, a friend and brother to his children. Please, he fell to his knees. A sword, that's all I ask. Let me die as Theon, not as Reek. 
tears trickled down his cheeks, impossibly warm. I was an ironborn, a son, a son of Pike of the Islands. A leaf drifted down from above, brushed his brow, and landed in the pool. It floated on the water, red, five-fingered, like a bloody hand. Ram, the tree murmured. They know, the gods know, they saw what I did. And for one strange moment, it seemed as if it were Bran's face carved into the pale trunk of the weirwood, staring down at him with eyes red and wise and sad. Bran's ghost, he thought. But that was madness. Why should Bran want to haunt him? He had been fond of the boy, had never done him any harm. It was not Bran we killed, it was not Rickon. They were only Miller's sons from the mill by the acorn water. I had to have two heads, else they would have mocked me, laughed at me. They... A voice said, who are you talking to? Theon spun, terrified that Ramsay had found him, but it was just the washerwoman, Holly, Rowan, and one whose name he did not know. The ghosts, he blurted. They whispered to me. They they know my name. So the Winds of Winter Theon chapter and the Battle of Ice were originally in A Dance with Dragons, but they were cut after the sacrifice. By the time we get to the Winds of Winter 1, Bran has been in the cave with Bloodraven for at least a year and a half, if not two, learning everything he can from the Weirwoods and from Bloodraven. So we can kind of assume the first Bran chapter is going to lead at least toward the destruction of the cave, or at least a way for Bran to get out of the cave. It's either probably going to happen in Bran 1 or Bran 2. I expect it to speed along pretty quickly, considering how much they have to cover. The death of the Mentor has to happen, obviously, right? Uh, for each and every one of these Starks, and Bran should probably kill the boy. Uh, Bloodraven is that first stroke to that. We see his powers have progressed here, and we've been noticing it through the chapters. Bran's actually speaking to Theon through the Weirwood, and he has been this entire time. We also can assume Bloodraven's still kind of in the picture, because uh, Melisandre won, we have that vision where she sees them. But as we keep going through A Dance with Dragons, it feels like Bran is more in control than ever before, so... Bloodraven's shrinking from his supervision more and more and more. And there's that line above, the they know, the gods know, they saw what I did, and Bran's ghost, he thought, but that was madness. Why would Bran want to haunt him? Like we've been talking about, there's this talk of worship and gods in A Dance with Dragons, and Stannis is Davos's salvation and god, as we said. Ramsay has forced Theon to believe in him as his, and he thinks the gods know what he did. The idea we keep mentioning of Bran and Bloodraven as the old gods or as a carnation of their power, it's an interesting extension to this theme. This scene is really the heart of this chapter, and I think is the reason everyone loves this chapter so much. When we were building up to this episode and you guys were announcing it, a lot of people were saying, oh, that's the best chapter in dance, and I think this scene is why. Because it's it's this catharsis, this moment of oasis in the heart of Winterfell at Chaos and the just horror of Theon's arc. What Bran is offering Theon as a god figure is something that Ramsay won't offer him, that Stannis won't offer him, that the Northmen loyal to the Starks won't offer him, and that's mercy. And mercy is what Theon needs. That's not the same as wiping away what he's done and won't substitute for him dealing with what he's done, but he's not in a mental or emotional or even physical position to do that at this point. So what he needs is to be treated like a person. He needs for someone to say, no, you have to live. There is worth in you yet. And without Bran reaching out and calling Theon by his name here... Would Theon have the courage to take that leap to faith with Jane Poole in his next chapter? I think he might not have. Mm. Yeah, and 
I mean, like, Theon hasn't, like, fully, I guess, done confession yet. He's in, like, owned up. He's like, hmm, I didn't kill Bran and Rickon. Like, those were the Miller's sons. I'm like, no, those were, those were, those were children, too. But, you know, there's so much about religion in these chapters. And I think there's a great parallel we see to Theon's uncle, Aaron, who in A Feast for Crows has chapters that are referred to as like the prophet by these chapter titles. And I think there are many ways in which Theon and Aaron's stories are similar. We've touched on some of those before, but like they both have these big encounters with the main villains in the story, or not main villains, but very, very big villains, and especially endure torture. Uh, some of these, of course, are in uh, Wynn's chapters. And Aaron's storyline has religious overtones, whereas with Theon's we see them as more of like undertones in moments like these. But at the end, I think Theon feels a little like a prophet in some of these ways, or a disciple like hating the old gods. And by that we mean Bran, his calling, because he persecuted the Northmen in some ways, and of course Bran and Rickon, and it kind of reminds me of when Saul in the Bible was you know, persecuting Christians. And then he has this, this moment on the, on the road and there's a whole scene where the Lord appears to him in the way that Bran is doing so through the rearwood to Theon. And he's like, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And then Saul undergoes a huge change and converts and becomes Paul. And we have a name change also, of course, with Theon. He becomes Reek and then comes back to being Theon. And he's like converted from being this ironborn and kind of like being a shitty believer in the drowned God. He's like, um, He's a secular-ish believer in the drowned god and then becomes a sort of born-again follower of the old gods, whether or not he's, like, really praying to them, but he's, like, doing their will. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's it. I think that's a great point. You see a lot of those religious themes across the Greyjoys as a whole. We also have it with Victorian, who engages with these themes in a more kind of satiric way. We're just like, one god, two gods, why not? Oh all god. the gods. Victorian. They're all my friends. And there's there's not the quite the, the high drama you see, I think, with Theon and Aaron. And I think, yeah, once you get to the Forsaken, Aaron's release chapters from the Winds of Winter, I think that's definitely Martin taking a lot of the themes and imagery from Theon's dance chapters and putting them in, as you say, a more explicitly religious context, a more explicitly magical, metaphysical context. Whereas in Theon's chapters, it's more under the surface until you get to this Godswood scene, which is really kind of where it comes into the open. Yeah. Um, Especially with that fog there. That gray mist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that gray mist. The washerwomen laugh at Theon for needing two heads, whatever that means, basically, to them, which we know, but they do not. They think he's babbling and he's just crazy talking. And they cut through right, right through his arc, which I love. We've been talking about all this drama and Theon's painful identity struggle, but. For, for them, it's just absurd. Oh, they would have laughed at you. That's why you killed children. That's why you had to have heads. That was your motivation. It's, it's a nice little kind of meta moment. It's like as close as we are to Theon, as much as we want to see him get better. Yeah. There is that recognition that his motivations in class were really, really And powerful. he still hasn't atoned for that, per se. He internally hasn't really realized, like, that was stupid. He hasn't realized, as you say, that the Miller's boys were still children and that, oh, they weren't Bran and Rickon. Yeah, they're still humans. Out. He still has to get through that, and I, I hope, in the same way that I hope Jamie has to confront Bran in some way, I hope Theon has to confront this in some way. Yeah, it's it also, there's that whole idea, like, he thinks about the washerwoman as whores. He doesn't think sex workers, he doesn't think nicely of them. He thinks they're just, like, gross whores that follow people around. That's pretty much what he says and thinks. And it's like, okay, well, you're not... 
you haven't changed, you know, like, this is the ghost of Winterfell past, and we are showing you, like, ah, you can change Theon, and he's not changing. Yes. And so, of course, that means that the Washerwomen mock him, and they, like, kind of seem to threaten him, and in exchange, Theon's just like, alright, well then, just kill me. They deny then uh, his accusation that they are the ones who have been killing all the people in Winterfell. He's like, kill me, like, all, you killed all of them. And then they just make fun of Theon's torture and say, like, all right, Theon, we're going to give you what you want. You can die as Theon. But first, we got to get you to sing a song for Abel. Yep. If he wants to die, he will get his death. But first, Abel needs him. Yeah. Hmm. And that's and that's where the chapter cuts off, which is a great ending. But I also really would have loved to see that scene with Theon and Mance. I get why we don't, but I would have loved to see it. Yeah, it gives too team. much away. Ah, uh-huh. ah. Uh-huh. just like Coachella. Exactly. Is that not what uh, this is? is that not- <laughs> yeah, is. Winterfell right now is Fire Festival. Stop! Oh my god! <laughs> oh good lord! Snow festival, ice Ooh. festival. Uh, this chapter is great because it's one of those chapters that has a title that is not Theon, not Reek. It is A Ghost in Winterfell. It's kind of got that double entendre. Theon is obviously the ghost in Winterfell currently, seeing all of his ghosts and just, you know, existing. However, there, the idea of the secret killer on the loose secret is the other killer. ghost in Winterfell. So I'm not really like I don't subscribe to any one theory. I, I've kind of pushed the side of the washerwoman, I guess. But what do y'all think? Who's that ghost in Winterfell killing people off? Yeah, th- yeah, Chloe. That yeah, I mean that was gonna be my joke. You know, Theon's the ghost of Winterfell and all these ghosts here. But like, I don't know. I don't, I like you. I don't really know or care who the serial killer is. Yeah, it's not fun. Gr- I know. Girls gone indecisive, more like. Um, it's just not something I really, I don't know, a lot of people think it's like a crazy secret, and I don't, I just think, uh, that, you know, they're, they're killing off people that suck. I think it's more girls gone indifferent. Yeah. Okay, okay, that's, that's fair. I, yeah, I agree, I don't really think it is supposed to be a mystery, I think it's pretty clearly the Spear Wives. They don't really actually deny it here. What, what Holly says is, how could it be us? We're women. Teats and cunnies, here to be fucked, not feared. That seems more like a confession to me. Like, yeah, we did it and no one's ever going to suspect us. Because they think of you, they think of us the same way you think of us. As, as just horrors following you around. And then when you get to the next chapter and Little Walder is killed. Oh. And Theon accuses them. They very specifically freak out and say, not him, we didn't kill him. They don't deny yeah. the rest. They specifically deny killing the child. Because that would make them the same as him, arguably, in terms of, of, of killing a yeah. kid. So I, I, I think it was the Spearwives trying to cause that factional infighting because that would make it easier for Mance's somewhat nebulous plan. Yeah, I think you uh, sold me on that. I'll take that. All right, we did it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, there's a lot when you read this chapter that, that points to the Spearwives, as you were saying. It's, I don't know, like you said, they're just like, how could it be us? And we were like, we know that they're Spearwives, right? They don't fucking wash things. Like, they might even be really bad at washing things, right? That's, that probably happens. They're like, ugh, we can't. We don't know how to deal with this part of our job. We're just here for assassinations. Yeah, you know, like drink. Which makes them real, really badasses. I think they're underrated characters, the Spearwives. Like, this is True. an intensely courageous mission to take on here, and they do it without flinching. Oh, yeah, absolutely. True. The wildlings are hardcore. They really are, though. 
they really truly are i mean they're living up north and they're just trying to they're just trying to live man well hey that was that was a chapter that was a hell of a chapter and i'm really glad we had you on with us Emmett. thank you for coming on with us well, thank you for having me. It's a terrific chapter, definitely one of my favorites, and I was glad to discuss it with you too. Yeah, and please do us all a favor, remind everyone of where they can find you, your podcast, and your wonderful blog. Yeah, who are you? Who am I again? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm also on uh, Not a Cast, a podcast I do with Brendan Beefish, aka Jeff Hartline. We're going through a song of ice and fire one chapter at a time in the the, the old-fashioned, stuffy, normal way, instead of jumping around between POVs like you do. We are, are currently about three-quarters of the way through the first book. We just covered Daenerys Six, in which she uh, has the assassination attempt in Vaistoth Rock. We're coming up on Ned's last chapter in the Black Sails, the Wisp Battle of the Whispering Wood and the Green Fork, Ned's execution, all that good stuff. So check us out if you haven't already. Uh, you can listen to us at, on Podbean, on SoundCloud, on iTunes. Check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where you can get exclusive episodes and early releases, show notes, and a lot more. Or you can just follow us uh, on Twitter at uh, notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. Shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, at gmail.com. More personally, you can find me at Port Quentin on Twitter or at portquentin.tumblr.com. As always, you guys... This has been great. You can check us out on social media if you haven't on Twitter at Girls Gone Canon, or you can pop us an email if you so feel obliged at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Yes, and of course, stay tuned with us, and you can subscribe to us on iTunes, on Google Play, on ACAST, on Stitcher, on Spotify, on Podbean, where we upload all the things. Yes, absolutely. We've got lots of places to check out. <laughs> and of course, as we mentioned earlier, we are working towards that stretch goal of hitting $1,000 to do a live stream for VIP patrons and uh, anyone that, you know, shows up. You know, it's going to be a party. Check us out at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. We have a ton of stuff in the works coming up. We're not announcing it yet, but there is just... There's lots. We got lots going. We're really excited about our spring schedule and can't wait to share that with you guys. So as always, I am Chloe, one of your hosts. You can find me on the internet as Lies in Arbor or at liesinarborgold.com. And I'm Eliana, another one of your hosts. And again, you might know me as Glass Table Girl. Thank you everyone for joining us this week. And thank you again to Emmett, other person with a name that begins with letter E, to other Emmett. <laughs> this guest. Thank you, other other Emmett. <laughs> Thanks for coming on. You're very welcome.